Our psalm this morning is found in Psalm 44. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we, have, we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. You have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our, souls, our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 8. We're reading verses 31 through 39. So listen carefully to God's word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, as we do come to your word this morning, we give thanks and we rejoice that you are for us in Jesus Christ. And we ask this morning that your spirit would remind us of the great depths of the gospel, of the extent of your love, and that you imprint these truths upon our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name that you would speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several years ago, I was asked by a friend who knew that my acquaintance with, with novels and my fondness of American literature, who's your favorite author inside of the American writers? And it was easy to answer. It was Ernest Hemingway. And as soon as I spoke the name Hemingway, it was like I had committed heresy. There was a grimace across her face, and she didn't quite understand, and she looked back at me, and the retort was, why do you like it so dark? It's so full of cynicism. It's so full of despair. Why do you like it so dark? And it is true. Hemingway uh, wrote uh, from the 1920s forward. He was the post-World War I generation. And there is a despair. There is an existentialism there that brings us into connection with the rawness of the human experience. And Hemingway doesn't reach Christian conclusions. And if you read him for that, you'll find yourself quite despairing. <laughs> Like many of his peers, he lost faith in morality, goodness, meaning, and justice. He found the world to be aimless and quite empty, that there was just an endless series of repetitions that ultimately led to death. He captures this beautifully in the title of one of his most famous novels, The Sun Also Rises. Of course, it's a quote from the book of Ecclesiastes that meditates upon the apparent meaninglessness and aimlessness of human life. And he then goes on to bring out that aimlessness through his characters. You see, in the novel, he never exactly says it. He never comes out and says that life is empty and life has no meaning. But through the psychology and the actions and the emotions of the main characters, particularly Brett and Jake, you find an empty and aimless world. They're wondering about Spain and kind of endless debaucheries great experiences of bullfighting and dead-end relationships. They believe in nothing themselves, and then they live for nothing. They distract themselves from the emptiness. They attempt to numb themselves to all of that emptiness. Their, act, their actions are inconsequential, and their activities are escapist. You come to the end of the book, and it feels very, very dark. But why? Why is it so dark? What was Hemingway trying to say about the world that he looked out and saw? And it was because of what he and his peers had seen post-World War I. It was because of what they had experienced. It was because of the horror that they had been awakened to. That when he surveyed the world and looked out, he reached that conclusion. And unfortunately, this is what many in the modern world do, that they look out at life, they see the futility, and they see the vanity that is real, and they conclude that there's no meaning, there's no point, there is no aim. 
And friends, this is the challenge that confronts the Christian church today. And you see in Romans 8, this is the challenge that Paul takes up. It's not a dynamic that simply was discovered in the 1920s on the heels of World War I. But Paul engages that same cynical, existential dynamic, the struggles of human beings to find meaning in life. And he doesn't do so by pretending that the world is something that it's not. He doesn't gloss over it. He doesn't put a fancy veneer on it. He doesn't simply try to say that the world is better than it simply appears to you. But rather, what he does is he affirms that the creation, the world around us, and human beings are groaning. He uses the image of us being in the travails of childbirth, that there are sufferings. He affirms all of these things from verses 18 through 30. He acknowledges that there is despair, that the world labors under its present burdens. But then he draws a quite different conclusion. Rather than the saying there is no point, there is no aim, there is no meaning, he finds himself in a different place in verses 31 through 39. And the question for us this morning is, how is that? How does the Christian gospel, the message that God is for us, how does it bring us to a different place? How does it pull us out of despondency and despair and ultimately, ultimate meaninglessness? And so our task this morning is to explore exactly how God is for us and how that gives shape to our present experiences. You see, for Hemingway, the way that he drew his conclusions was to look out at the world, to look at his circumstance, and then reason back to God. But Paul demands that we think differently. He challenges us not to think from our circumstances back to God, but rather that we begin with God and what God has objectively revealed and what God has done from the ways and the works of God. And that we then reason back into our circumstances. Consider how he argues with us in, in verses 31 and 32. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And this is Paul's method is to begin in the ways and the works of God revealed in Jesus Christ and then to work back into our circumstances. This is how he wants us to explore that question. And so this morning as we look at Romans 8 and these famous verses 31 through 39, we'll take note of two things about how God is for us in Jesus Christ. First that we find is in verse 32. We see that God is for us and that our inheritance is secure. This is the precise way that he is for us, and that he has secured an inheritance that cannot be taken away. He asks this question, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And the focus of understanding this verse falls on the final two words, all things. Those things that God graciously gives us because he did not spare his own son. And Paul here is arguing from the greater to the lesser. That if he did not spare his son, then how is he not going to give you all things? 
And then what does it mean? What is the all things referring to? It's essential to put those words in context of chapter 8. It's very clear when we do so that the all things is referring to the future inheritance that God has for his children, his sons and his daughters set apart in Jesus Christ. And we find that inheritance discussed in verses 19 through 21. Follow with me. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And this is Paul's great hope. That the creation that was subjected to futility. And so he affirms the, what can appear to be the meaninglessness of life and the vanity of life. He says that it was subjected with a point and with a reason. And that God's aim, God's goal is to renew. That God's aim and God's goal is to redeem. That God's aim and God's goal is to rescue that creation and to return its glory that he would restore it from sin. You see, God didn't make trash. And he's not going to trash what he makes. That God's great goal is to restore all things through his son, Jesus Christ. That he would rescue it from its futility and from its vanity. And he would restore it and make it right and make it new. And the question that comes to us inside of that is how does this address the meaninglessness and the vanity of life? How do, exactly does this Christian hope put in front of us address that meaninglessness? You'll note in ver verse 18 of chapter 8 that Paul does simply acknowledge the sufferings of the world. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What he does here is he doesn't ignore suffering. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't say, oh, it's really not that bad. The Apostle Paul, when he looks out on the world, he sees an incredible tragedy. He grieves and he mourns because he knows just what the glory of creation was supposed to be. And this is the Christian stance when we look at the world. is not to simply put on a stoic face and say, one day it will be better. But rather, it is to affirm those sufferings, to affirm all the difficulty, to affirm all the trouble and the trial. But then you'll note that he doesn't end there. But rather, he sees through the suffering. He doesn't end in the suffering. He goes beyond them. And what he says is because if Christ Jesus is up from the dead, then there is hope. Look where he goes in verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And this is the challenge of the Christian life. That we retain hope. That we maintain faith. That what God has spoken and what he has done in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that that work will be completed. That one day the scourge of sin will be scrubbed clean 
from creation, that its pollution will be removed, that death will be no more, that the tears will be wiped from our eyes, that creation will once again rejoice and sing, that it will no longer labor under its burdens. And the challenge of the Christian life is to wait for that with patience. And the failure of faith is often in this waiting. It is to give way to the cynicism and despair of the current hour, of the burdens that we bear, of the pains that we feel. And it's to answer the question of those pains by saying, yes, there is no point. There is no aim. But Paul directs Christian hope that's secure in Jesus Christ. And he says that we will inherit those all things, that those belong to you, that all these things belong to you. This is what he puts in front of us. Now, the second piece of what it means for God to be for us is found in verses 33 and 34. And we see that God is for us in that the verdict against our sin has already been passed. Paul enters into a series of rhetorical questions that are extremely powerful. They actually echo Isaiah 50, verses 7 through 9. Listen again to what he asks. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. These questions come out of what is known as Isaiah's third servant song. You may find it helpful to turn to Isaiah 50, verses 7 through 9. Listen to what the servant of the Lord prays. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? And friends, Paul is asking these questions. He asks, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? There is an obvious rhetorical answer but he gives it to us anyway. It is God who justifies. Then he asks, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And friends, we can ask these questions ultimately because these questions were asked and they were answered by Jesus Christ. The one who prays Isaiah 50, the one who is the faithful and true servant of God was Jesus. And he asked who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And Jesus Christ is the elect one, the anointed one, the one who was set apart from all eternity to realize God's purposes for creation. And no one can bring a charge against him. And he knows that and he prays for us and he stands in our place. And because we are in him, we can then join him in the confidence that there is no charge to be leveled against us. There is no condemnation. That that has been exhausted. Christ was condemned for us. And then he was vindicated. He was declared to be in the right. And so now he stands at God's right hand and he's interceding for us. He is our advocate. He is the one who serves us in that way. We stand in him, 
We don't stand on account of anything else. And what this does is it presses back against two opposing human tendencies. And I find that these tendencies live inside of all of us, even though they seem oppositional. And the first thing, as we know that the verdict has already been delivered, it assaults an overactive conscience that lives within us. That all of us have an overactive conscience that tends to condemn us and tell us that we're not worthy. That it tries to convince us that God is not for us because we're simply too bad. That in our faults and in our failures, we condemn ourselves. But friends, the good news is that such thinking inside of the Christian family of faith is obliterated by the gospel. That God is for us, not when we perform for him. That God is for us in our sins. That Christ Jesus intercedes for us. That he didn't save his own life. He didn't try to hold on to it. That he gave himself over to death and he goes down into death on our behalf. That God is for us and that Christ is interceding at God's right hand today. And we must allow the gospel, we must allow the message that God is for us in Christ Jesus to assault that overactive conscience, to minister back to it. When we feel the weight of our sins and our failures, we must hear God declare that he is for us. Several years ago, it was early on, especially in my marriage, where I was becoming more acquainted uh, with my sins and failures those were being highlighted for me because I now had this new private investigator living with me who was faithfully exposing things that I had long ignored and thought were um, inconsequential in the faults of others. And I remember having a conversation with a friend because there was despondency and there was some despair. At that point in my Christian life, I had felt like I had it together and I felt like that's what it meant to be a good Christian. And so suddenly I was being confronted with this mass of evidence, no, no small bit of material about my own failures and what it was like to be around me. And it was at that point in conversation with my friend that I needed the grace of the gospel. And we joked that we were going to go into a business together and print up new undershirts and have it written backwards on it so you could read it in the mirror that God is for me. Because, friends, that was the reminder that I needed. I needed it deeply, that God in Christ Jesus is for me, that there's no charge that can be brought against me, that when I face the material that is real, that is to condemn me, that I stand before God because of what Christ has done on my behalf, and that my overactive conscience that comes in to accuse me, and others who may jump in and join in that fight, that I have a weapon to press back against, and it's not something that comes from within me, but it comes from God. It's what God has done on my behalf in Christ Jesus. And friends, that is the power of the gospel. But the second thing that this pushes back against, while it does assault that overactive conscience, it also insults the pride that lives within us. You see, the thing that the gospel also denies is it denies that there's any competence, 
that there's any power, that there's any relevance, and that there's any value to human works. And this is the great insult of the gospel to human beings that many simply find detestable, that they cannot appreciate, that they cannot accept. The insult to our pride and the injury that occurs when we hear that God is for us is he is for us and must be for us because we can do nothing of ourselves. That we can't fix this problem. That we are condemned. That we're in the dock and the verdict is negative. But because one stands in our place and because one now intercedes for us who is righteous, we can stand in him. And so we must allow that message of God for us to press back against our pride. And we must surrender all that we would desire to bring to commend ourselves, knowing that it has no value. And friends, this is the great power of the verdict that was passed when Jesus was raised from the dead. Receive that. Experience that affirmation. Know that God is for you in Jesus Christ. And so we see this secure possession, this inheritance that we have that's going out into the future. And we also see that there's a secure verdict, that God has given that to us through Christ. And then where Paul goes in the rest of the passage is he takes that secure verdict and he takes that secure possession, that inheritance that is to come. And he then reasons back into our present circumstances. And he says that those two things, that God is for you in this way, will then give shape to your present experiences and to the present events of your life. And so what he concludes, he begins in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And in verse 37, know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And do you see how he reaches that great conclusion? Because God is for us and God did not spare his own son, that he has given us an inheritance and he's established a verdict for us. How cannot God be for you today? That in all the difficulty, the burdens that we bear, he lists them and enumerates them, but says that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. He's announced the verdict already. He has your inheritance for you. And so once again, he argues from the greater to the lesser, how is he not for you, even in the midst of great difficulties that you may experience in the present? This is how we are invited in to see the vanity and the struggle and the toil of life. Several weeks ago, received a call on Wednesday evening that our brother Tom Damish had passed away. And immediately... As I received that news, we knew the direction that was going, but there were questions. There were questions deep in heart and mind and soul that I knew were on the heart and mind of many of you. And the question that was particularly pinging for me 
is why God? And particularly, why God, why didn't you answer our prayer? You see, several months before, Tom had come with his family to the session, and he had asked to be anointed with oil and for God to heal him. And we prayed. And we prayed hard. We asked God to do something, to demonstrate himself in a way that would be unique, that would be a singular witness that Tom's body would be healed. So we asked the question, why didn't he? Why not? Why wouldn't God have done that? What relief that could have been? And I woke up on Thursday morning early because we had our right-wise Bible study that morning lamentably. And as I asked that question again, driving in as I was praying to God, why? A question came back from God. It was deep from the memory bank of my days with the topical memory system that the navigators gave to us. And one of the very first verses that I memorized was Romans 8.32. And in the midst of my questioning God why, this came back. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously or freely give us all things? And friends, that's God's rhetorical question back to us. In the midst of circumstances, in the midst of death, in the midst of things that are undesirable, in the midst of the groaning of our present life in a broken and fallen world, how will I not give you all things freely and graciously? That these things ultimately belong to you. And God affirms that they are real sufferings and they are real pains. And he doesn't ask us to stoically look at them. But that he has eradicated them and he has overcome them. And therefore nothing can separate us from his love. And so rather than sitting in our circumstances, in all of the pain and then reaching a conclusion that God doesn't care or that God isn't real or that life is meaningless and has no point... Rather, we are absorbed in the truth of the message that God is for us. He is for us in an inheritance that's secure. He's for us in a verdict that has been announced. And that has all been demonstrated in this objective historical event of Jesus Christ entering into the world and not sparing his life. This is the intense reasoning of the gospel pressing into the most sensitive areas of human existence. Why do I like the existentialist? Because they were speaking the truth about certain matters. They were highlighting something for society and for humanity. They were bringing something to bear and revealing something that we don't like to deal with. The rawness of human existence, the reality of death, the darkness and despair of a fallen world. And they were reminding everyone not to sugarcoat it. But they did so without an answer. And so, friends, hear their complaint, hear their question, but then hear God's answer that God is for us. In all the despair and brokenness of a fallen world, God is for us in Christ Jesus. The verdict is announced. The inheritance is secure. And let that give shape to your present trials, 
to your troubles, to your despair, to your despondency. Let him minister this better word to you. It's a healing word. It's a word that gives hope. It's a word that can shape profoundly our life in the present, and it will shape profoundly our life in the future. Let's pray. Father, as we consider what it means for you to be with us in sending your son, Jesus, we celebrate and give thanks that you are for us. This goes past our own understanding, our ability to conceive it, but we ask that you would imprint these things upon our heart and upon our soul this morning. We desperately need to hear it. And so convince us and shape the way we approach our present trials and troubles that we would know that nothing separates us from your great love that is ours in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.